Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Um, today's sutta in our uh, jhana structured study uh, is the Atana Nagara Sutta, uh, and it teaches the the single quality that is developed through the Dhamma that establishes and maintains the awakened state, full human maturity. Uh, some of the suttas that I'm teaching in this series uh, are similar to this. Uh, this really makes that point of this single quality. On one occasion, Venerable Ananda was at Vallabhagamaka <laughs> near Vasali. At that same time, a householder, Dasana, from Atakanagara, was nearby in Pataliputta on business. Completing his business, Dasana went to the Kukata Monastery to ask a certain monk a question. Where is Venerable Ananda staying? And Ananda was the, the Buddha's cousin and his chief attendant for most of his life and for every day of the last 25 years of his life. Where is Venerable Ananda staying? I would like to see him. The monk told him Ananda where Ananda was and Dasana left immediately. Upon meeting Ananda, Dasama bowed and sat to one side. He had a question. Venerable Sir, is there a single quality taught by the Buddha to be developed so that the unreleased mind of a Dhamma practitioner who is mindful, ardent, alert, and resolute in the Dhamma would attain release and security from the, from the yoke of clinging to views rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. Ananda answered, Yes, there is, friend. When a Dhamma practitioner secluded from sensuality and other unskillful qualities, enters and remains in the first jhana. So that secluded from sensuality and other unskillful qualities is simply the beginning of jhana meditation, as we learned in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. We simply find a secluded spot, and we become mindful of our breath. We recognize that we're caught up in a distraction related to a feeling or a thought. We come back to the sensation of breathing. And... The physical seclusion that enables that is now mirrored by the seclusion that we're establishing through concentration. In other words, as I keep interrupting my train of conditioned thought, which is reacting to feelings and thoughts, and simply bring my mind into this single-pointed concentration of being mindful of my breath and my body, we are establishing in that moment the awakened state or at least the possibility of the awakened state. This first jhana is experienced as rapture born of that very seclusion. So rapture is a, um, a kind of archaic word that has different connotations. In, in a Christian society, rapture is almost always uh, attributed to the second coming or that, that, that time when Jesus Christ comes back to earth and all these magical and mystical things happen. That's not what we're talking about here as far as rapture. Rapture here simply means joyful engagement with what we're doing. Rapture born of that very seclusion. So the first jhana is the, the joyful engagement with the, the establishment of seclusion by that simple tool of mindfulness of my breath and my body. 
And notice that I said mindfulness of my breath and my body, not mindfulness of my breath. That's an important distinction between kind of modern meditation practices and the whole point of the Buddha's meditation and single-pointed concentration, which is a mind united in its body. This first jhana is accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. So again, words that we might not readily understand, but they're very simple. Directed thought simply means I am directing my thought away from the distraction and towards my breath. And I'm also evaluating. In the first jhana, most of us will evaluate what we're doing, meaning we're judging it. Is this good? Is it bad? Am I getting something out of it? Is it delivering me a blissful state? That's all part of the first jhana, to be recognized as another distraction or a fabrication, directed thought and evaluation, and we continue with meditation. This first jhana is fabricated, impermanent, and subject to cessation. So what what does fabricated mean in this sense? It means that we're working within a mind that's conditioned, because the Dhamma meets us wherever we are. It would be useless if it didn't, if it didn't have that ability. It meets us where we are, which is distracted in a conditioned quality of mind. So anything that is coming out of that mind is in that, in that moment fabricated. So we have to understand that because we're caught in fabrications, all is not lost. In fact, the Buddha teaches us that even though our minds are caught up in a fabricated or corrupted way of looking at ourselves in relation to the world, there is a way out. And that's what Dhamma practice is for. So we're not to uh, even evaluate the fact that I'm caught in a fabrication. I just recognize it as such and continue with my practice, which will develop into these ever-deepening levels of jhana. As they continue meditation, they enter and remain in the second jhana. This second jhana is experienced as rapture and pleasure now born of concentration. So notice the distinction. And also notice how you have experienced this in your meditation practice. And that's really why the Buddha teaches the four levels of jhana, so that we can recognize that our practice is bearing fruit. So the first jhana is simply, we recognize the pleasure of seclusion. I'm disentangling myself from the world. There's pleasure in that. And now the second jhana, we're recognizing the skillful pleasure that's that's the recognition of developing concentration. Excuse me. So, immediately in this teaching, the Buddha is saying, we sit and meditate. We first acknowledge that we have established seclusion. We are joyfully engaged in that practice, and we take another breath. And we we develop then into the second jhana. Now we recognize that our concentration is increasing. That's what this is teaching. Recognize that in that moment, every time that you come back to the sensation of breathing, every time we unite our minds into our bodies, our concentration is increasing. And we take skillful pleasure in that. It's okay. We can enjoy our Dhamma practice. I'm saying that because I had a long conversation with someone this morning, another student, about um, how, how do I say this? He felt, he made this comment, that much of his Buddhist practice up until this point, meaning coming to to Cross River Meditation Center, felt like patience, like he was always trying to, to pay off for being somehow a lacking person or a bad person. And it's none of that. The Buddhist teaches us that our minds are fabricated. We're caught up in a corrupted way of looking at ourselves in relation to the world. As our concentration increases, we can recognize 
the absurdity of all that and simply take a breath and continue our practice. We don't need to judge ourselves harshly. We can let go of directed thought and evaluation directly through our meditation practice. Free of, free of directed thought and evaluation, the joy of concentration permeates their entire mind and body. And I would bet every one of you has experienced that. We tend to discount something that doesn't last, however. And so it's another reason why we teach these, deep, these deepening levels of jhana. So we recognize the benefit of being present for each level. They're all significant. In other words, the fourth level of jhana is really not that much more significant than the first level because it's all one practice that leads to the same thing. We can't start at the fourth level of jhana, or at least most people can't, and we can't skip them because this is just a, it's a, it's an organic process of undoing our own conditioned thinking. Despite the pleasure of this second jhana, they understand this second jhana is fabricated, impermanent, and subject to cessation. Why did the Buddha teach that? You have to go back to, to the Nagara Sutta and where the, and, and the Aditya Pariyaya Sutta where the Buddha is teaching his own awakening and how he studied with the most advanced meditation teachers of his time. Two of them that he mentions often are Alara Kalama and Udeka Ramaputta that both taught a meditation practice that was steeped in mysticism and establishing yourself in a, in a magical mental plane. And that was a peaceful place that was simply an escape from reality. That the Buddha recognized that many people that meditated went there and went no further. In other words, they were able to establish in their mind a kind of a, a, a pleasant prison-like quality where they had blocked out everything, but were still stuck in this second jhana. And they didn't realize that that second jhana is fabricated. There's something beyond just that feeling of isolation. And, and the, the Buddha points out that that is subject to cessation as well. Continuing meditation, they enter and remain into the, in the third jhana, which is equanimous and mindful, a pleasant abiding. So again, every one of us has had this feeling in meditation, even if it was just for a brief moment or two. And a mind of equanimity is a mind that is balanced. It's not, it's not chasing after anything. It's not seeking anything. It's calm. It's restful. It's a pleasant place to be. And uh, has anyone not developed this third jhana and recognize it? If you have, please say it, you have. I'll take by your silence that you, that you have. You've all experienced this third level of jhana. Mm -hmm. It's important to recognize that because then our jhana practice, our meditation practice, becomes self-encouraging. We're not doing it because we're hoping to get somewhere. We're realizing, yeah, we are getting somewhere. I am, well, I am more concentrated than I was. I can, I can experience it and I can take skillful pleasure in it. It's a pleasant abiding. With the fading of rapture, this pleasant abiding permeates their entire mind and body. And again, that might sound like something um, magnificent and something that we hope to hold on to. But that brief moment, if that's all that it is, is that moment that it's permeating our entire mind and body. And that's what is to be recognized, that this brief moment of profound concentration is only the passageway between the second and the third jhana. There's yet more to do. They understand that this third jhana is fabricated, it's impermanent, and it too is subject to cessation. So as our concentration deepens, 
We don't grasp onto any achievement or any one of these levels because that would lock us into that level and it would preclude us from moving further. We're not, we're not trying to accomplish anything in meditation except ever-deepening concentration. And that is, that, that's a lifelong progress process. Continuing meditation, they enter and remain in the fourth jhana, which is pure equanimity and mindful. And so I would say, some of you may argue, that you've all experienced this fourth level of jhana. You may not recognize it, or you may not be attributing the quality to it that is necessary to, rec- to, to recognize it. Pure equanimity, and notice the Buddha doesn't put a time frame on us, or Ananda doesn't put a time frame, meaning that you recognize your mind is, is resting in pure equanimity and mindful for 18 minutes, or 18 hours, or 18 weeks, or 18 years. It's, it's an experience in your meditation practice that is like every other moment in our life, it's impermanent. And as we deepen our concentration, even the third jhana is impermanent and fabricated. It's the, it being pure, neither pleasure nor pain is seen. So again, I would bet that every one of you has had that experience where we're no longer evaluating whether this is a pleasurable moment or a painful moment. We're just resting in the moment. That's the third jhana. It's to be recognized. But again, it's not to be grasped after or clung to. Just to recognize that it's an aspect. It's an experiential aspect of deepening concentration. And again, why is that important? So that we know it. So that we know what concentration is. Because up until the point of developing concentration, we really don't know. Like anything else in life, until we experience it, it's just a concept, isn't it? And again, I'm talking about the concept, the, the concentration that is developed through jhana meditation for Dhamma practice. They sit permeated in mind and body with pure, bright awareness. Despite the pleasure of this fourth jhana, they understand that this fourth jhana is fabricated, impermanent, and subject to cessation. A few years ago, I got a question from uh, someone, a new student, and there was some agitation in their, in their voice. And they wanted to know, why, why would the Buddha keep meditating after he was awakened? And so immediately I knew that they saw meditation as a chore, something that they had to get through to get to a certain point, rather than how, what the Buddha taught. The meditation practice itself is a, a direct experience of the, the awakened mind. It's both metaphor and the practical experience of that. In this moment, as we sit in pure, bright awareness, we are having the experience of an awakened human being, a fully mature human being. However, it's fleeting, isn't it? Excuse me. And for most of us in meditation, everyone that I've ever taught, it is fleeting. Of course it's fleeting. We're living in an impermanent world. The Dhamma is not something permanent. The Dhamma is fabricated. Why do I say that? Because it must be if it's going to meet us where we are, fabricated. As concentration or or jhana deepens, their mind is unbound, referring to the fourth level of jhana. Free of the confining yoke of ignorance. They are imbued with unlimited goodwill, with compassion, with empathetic joy, their mind resting in equanimity. 
Even so, this Dhamma practitioner understands that this release through goodwill, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity is itself fabricated. It's impermanent and it is subject to cessation. That's why the Buddha kept meditating after he awakened, because he understand the impermanence of all things, including the present quality of his mind. That is not an, an achievement that becomes a confining place, meaning it becomes stagnant, or it would be a confining place. An awakened, well-concentrated mind is its exquisitely supple. And so, being supple, it is sub, the, the, the present quality of mind is subject to cessation. But it, the, the, the cessation of this present moment in a mind that is well-concentrated simply leads to another moment that is resting in jhana. But that mind is not stagnant. It's not stuck in a point of view. It's very supple. It's a reference point to what is occurring. And you've heard me describe the awakened mind as just that. People question, well, what, is, what happens when we let go of all fabricated views of self? The initial thought seems like annihilation of self, isn't it? But it's just the opposite of that. It's being present for each and every moment of our life. That's the fourth level of jhana that becomes an ongoing experience. This, this, there's a truck outside. My, just give me a second. I don't know why this person is going on out here. Maybe I could... Oh, now I know. Okay. Getting a little distracting, even to a well-concentrated mind like mine. Let me just go back to that. This release... Through goodwill, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity is fabricated, impermanent, and subject to cessation. Remaining well concentrated, meaning continuing in that fourth level of jhana, they reach the end of the defilements. In that moment there is no greed, aversion, or deluded thinking left within me. If they do not reach the ending of the defilements right then and there, through their continued right effort, the five lower fetters fade away. They are self-identification, grasping at rituals and practices, doubt and uncertainty, sensual craving, and deluded thinking. And I won't get too deep into that, but many of these things that the Buddha describes here are part of modern Buddhist practices. A lot of rituals, a lot of practices. Doubt and uncertainty are, is, is the main focus of one major tradition that we should, we should dive into our doubt and develop doubt and cultivate doubt. The Buddha says recognize doubt and let it go. Furthermore, having abandoned self-identification with form, having abandoned aversion, having abandoned self-reference now here and now there, that's always a reference to getting caught up in, our, in, in non-physical magical states of mind, now here and now there, everywhere we can think of, we establish delusion. They enter and remain in, in the perception of the infinitude of space, then the dimension of an infinite consciousness, then the dimension of infinite nothingness, and then too, the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception. Now notice how Ananda or Nabuda treats these non-physical, magical, mystical, um, mental states that are just part of delusion. Even here they understand that any phenomena connected to the five clinging aggregates, form, feeling, perceptions, fabrications, and consciousness is impermanent, stressful, a disease, painful, an affliction, and as such, it is anatta, it is not a self. So, just as today, the goal of much, uh, all of New Age kind of thinking and much of modern Buddhism 
is the establishment not here in this human life, but in a future form of uh, reward for a well-done Buddhist practice in a future life or a future plane of existence. That was just as common during the Buddhist time. And he's calling that a disease. It's stressful. Why? Because it's fabricated. There's no possible way for a human being to have any of these experiences save within our own mind. And even though there's a great collective of people agreeing that this is what we want, it's still a disease. This is one of the things that got me, brought me some clarity and allowed me to disentangle myself from the um, Buddhist relationships that I had established and very strong relationships with certain monasteries that were, I'm not going to say they were difficult for me to let go of, but there was a lot of clinging. I mentioned a little bit of this to Jeff earlier today. Because of that relationship, because of my entanglement and the effort that I put into these other practices, when I came across these teachings, I realized that they were a disease. They were, they were leading to pain. They were stressful. And in that understanding, it became very easy for me to let them go. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this and relating my personal experience because this is the personal experience of developing the Dhamma. It is just this direct. It undoes, it, it undoes a lot of... How do I say this? It disentangles our minds from our own entanglements, our own assumptions about what life should be like, what my practice should be like, what so-called spirituality should be like, what the whole point of this Buddhist practice is for. The whole point of the Dhamma is to awaken, to gain full human maturity. Ananda continues, they disregard these phenomena and incline their minds to the cessation of ignorance. We turn away from anything that might, we might be grasping after, any magical establishment, any fabrication, and incline our minds to the cessation of ignorance. And it's a very specific ignorance, isn't it? It's ignorance of four noble truths. Nothing remains to provoke the becoming of further ignorance and the birth of continued suffering. That is a teaching on the Buddha's teachings on birth. The Buddha never taught any, any teachings on future rebirth, future physical birth. His only reference to birth was what are we giving birth to in this moment? And if my mind is rooted in ignorance, I can only become further ignorant. I can only give birth to further ignorance. But if my mind is resting in concentration and established refined mindfulness, then my mind is inclined towards awakening. They will enter into pure bright awareness, a pleasant abiding, totally unbound from clinging to wrong views. Listen to this last line, not the last line. Never to lose their mind again. They will enter into a pure bright awareness, a pleasant abiding, totally unbound from clinging to wrong views, never to lose their mind again. And also notice how the Buddha describes that. And no, or Ananda, but he's following his teacher's teaching. A pleasant abiding. If we're looking for anything more out of our Dhamma practice than a pleasant abiding, find something else, because that's what this is about. But it's a profound sense of a pleasant abiding. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasant abiding that is free of grasping after more pleasant abiding. It is simply a reference point to what's occurring. This, my friend, is a single quality taught by the Buddha to be developed 
so that the unreleased mind of a Dhamma practitioner who is mindful, ardent, alert, and resolute in the Dhamma would attain release and security from the yoke of clinging to views rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. Dasana got it. Upon hearing these words, Dasana remarked, Venerable Ananda, it is as if a Dhamma practitioner were seeking a single opening into treasure and all at once realized 11 openings to treasure. In the same way, in the same way I was seeking a single doorway to the ending of all fabrications. All at once, you taught me 11 doorways I can take, all leading to the single point of concentration from fabricated views. Venerable Ananda, all true teachers deserve a fee. I will pay homage to you. Dasana then gathered the Sanghas from Vasali and Palapatuta and prepared a feast for them. He gave a pair of cloths to each Sangha member and a triple robe to Ananda. He then built a dwelling for Venerable Ananda. That's the end of the sutta. So that last is just the the um, the showing of appreciana, appreciana, appreciation for Dasana for what he had just learned right there. And he understood that Ananda had just given him a key to the Dhamma to not look beyond this single quality that is necessary for awakening, a mind resting in equanimity in that fourth level of jhana. And we experience that in each and every jhana session, and now even more so, because we'll be, we'll be mindful of it, we'll be expecting this and recognizing it as it arises. This is similar to the, uh, I can't remember, the, I think it was the Saraputta Sutta that I taught a short while ago. And this is a common theme in jhana meditation. These four levels of jhana are to be recognized solely for the, the, um, for the recognition of ever-deepening concentration that our jhana practice is bearing fruit. So that's my talk for today. Let's, uh, we'll go, let's talk to Jeff first. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing well. How's everybody there? They're all good. Um, gosh, I don't know what I could add to this um, well I'll just talk about some of my own experience um, I, I feel my meditation is going really well what I'm struck with though is, is uh, it, unless I'm using a guided meditation I lose track of time completely I have no sense of time uh, I, granted some, some days five minutes seems like it's torture yeah. But there are times when I can sit down and if something didn't catch my attention or there weren't callbacks, I could stay there for who knows how long. It It's uh, pleasant. <laughs> I guess that's all the only I could think. I could, it, it's insightful and pleasant. Do you notice these deepening levels of jhana in your meditation practice, Jeff? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. And that, that, yeah. That, it, With, without question. Like I say, some days it's it's a battle, but there, more and more it's... Uh, uh, no, I, I, I sense it now not just... Uh, the, the concentration on the breathing for me is now breathing of the whole body. It's not just a point, say, you know, somewhere I've seen the reference to the tip of the nose or whatever. Uh, 
that seems to me to be more of a, uh, I wouldn't say it's a physical sensation, but it's an awareness of the body. Yeah. Oh, I feel located in the body. That's yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Because when we're caught up in our fabrications, we're not in our body. I mean, of course we are in a in a, in a true physiological sense. We can't leave our bodies, but our minds are distracted outside of what's occurring, so we're not in our bodies. And it's so important to recognize that, and and it is just that way. You know, this is this is what we're doing. So, thank you, Jeff. Cliff, good to see you today. Hello. How are you? Uh, very, very good. Good. So I, I was wondering about um, the self is a fabrication, and fabrication is a condition for stress and suffering, right? Yeah. Now, when you said Dharma is fabricated, I was wondering if you could expound on that. In particular, Dharma has so many, 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 many different meanings. What you meant by Dharma is fabricated. Yeah, the, well, and I, I use the word Dharma to distinguish it, to distinguish from the word Dharma, which is simply my way of referring to things that the, that the Buddha didn't teach, or at least that I don't teach. Um, it, a, a human mind is fabricated because it's rooted in wrong views of reality. It, and again, it's not a magical or mystical fabrication. It's simply it's not seeing things clearly, so it's fabricated. So the Dhamma itself, by its nature, is fabricated. It's, it's something that is put together to address that. But in the reality of, of an awakened human, mind, human being, there is no Dhamma practice. It's just the ongoing experience of, of this life. So it's the Dhamma itself is a uh, it's a tool, if you will, to get to that point of full human maturity. So much like I might need a tool to bang a nail in, and so I'll fabricate something out of a out of a piece of steel that'll allow me to do that. In that way, the Dhamma is fabricated. It's it's designed for a specific. It's designed as a tool to hit a specific nail. So I hope that I hope that helps, Cliff. Yeah, yeah it does help quite a bit. So, are, but you, are you saying that any view? Would be you said wrong views would be fabricated, but even correct views wouldn't any view at all be a fabrication? Well, just in the nature of a, being a view. Yes, if it's a self-referential view, but we're we're also getting into into um, an area that it can only be experienced. So you, you can kind of get lost in trying to describe it, except to say yes, and any self-referential view is. In the framework of the Dhamma, a fabricated view, because there would be no self-reference in a mind that is simply a, a reference point to what's occurring, which is what the Buddha teaches us to be. That's a, a, an, an awakened human being. But he's also not teaching annihilation. That, that, that self that's hard for us to conceptualize in that way as being a simple reference point is what a human being is when, they're, when all of the wrong views are taken away. There's nothing to distract. Nothing, excuse me. As the Buddha would say, nothing to provoke another moment of ignorance. And this this sutta really gets right to that to the heart of that that single pointed um, jhana. So. Yeah, it's great stuff in here. Yeah, it really is. It's a, it's a great sutta, but they all are. You know, I, I find myself saying that more and more and more. Mm-hmm. This is my my favorite. Just had a, a, a the, the, we're going through the Dhammapada again. Some of you have been joining us off and on, and. It's probably the fourth or fifth time I've gone through it as a structured study. 
And the first time it blew me away by how profound it was. And every time I teach it now, it's, it's just remarkable. Uh, but I say that about all these suttas. You know, they, they all, in one way or another, um, how, how do I, there's hardly a wasted idea in the Dhamma because, because it's all dealing with the same thing, is, is recognizing ignorance of Four Noble Truths and, and abandoning those. So every sutta is focused in that way, if you can see it. And it's just remarkable. This one... It's like uh, Mark Twain said um, that he noticed that the older he got, how much smarter his father was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I would say the same thing, you know, <laughs> especially now. <laughs> and I, I feel that same way about, uh, and I think you're all probably feeling, even though I, obviously I've never met Siddhartha Gautama because of this study, I really feel like I have not a personal relationship with someone who's been dead for 2600 years, but he, he really has become a part of, of our lives in a very personal way because he taught that way and we are practicing it that way. We're, we're practicing, he taught the Dhamma at a human level and it's still present here and we're experiencing it as a, at the human level. And so it's just like that. You know what? I, uh, every day I think I'm, I'm more amazed at what this guy from 2,600 years ago is still teaching me today. And it's because, because he was able to take a very confused mind and straighten it out at least a little bit to see things that are, to see things, life as life it is, as, as it really occurs. That's remarkable. Yeah. Tom, how are you? Thank you, Cliff. Uh, hi, John. Hello, everyone. Good to see you and thanks for the, the teaching. Um, yeah, I wrote down a couple of questions. I've often been trying to differentiate between the four jhanas. And um, I'm sort of 90% there, but it's still with that, the third and the fourth jhana that I get a little bit confused. Um, and I was trying to sort of work out that something that I notice as being different between the third and the fourth jhana is with the, um, in the third jhana, um, we, it refers to the fading of rapture. Yeah. Um, and it basically talks about this pleasant abiding permeates their body. With the, um, so it focuses more, at least as I understand it, on being able to sort of let go of pleasure. Right? It seems a bit more of a focus on pleasure in the third jhana. And yes. um, in the fourth jhana, it says being pure, neither pleasure nor pain is seen. Yeah. Um, that seems to be like a crucial difference. And I'm just wondering if that is something that is as you're deepening practice, like one thing is to let go of a pleasant sensation, but then in the fourth jhana, you can let go of both pleasure and pain. If that's like a sign of your deepening yes. practice. That, that's exactly it. And if you, if you really look at that, the, the, the subtlety between those levels, the, between the third and the fourth jhana, uh, you wouldn't be able to discern it without a well-concentrated mind. And so again, it's a teaching on, look, look at what you can do with your own mind. You can see the difference between even, even a, uh, a subtle pleasure and the absence of even that. That's, that's the teaching of concentration. We can do it ourselves. We can see it. And you just, you just explain it, that you've seen it in yourself. You notice a difference. So we're taught as human beings, I think from the moment of birth, that we should always be seeking pleasurable experiences, however they might be. And, and, and the Buddha teaches us that up to a certain point, there's value in that if you, if you direct it correctly. 
But even then, and that would be the, the same as establishing myself in the infinitude of consciousness and think that I, I've had experiences like that, that I thought that I was, I, I was all one cosmic mind, you know, you know, and it was magnificent. I can, I mean, I can conjure it up right now where I was and what it felt like. It was just a distraction from what was occurring. Mm. And what was, what's left is this pure, bright awareness of what? Mm. Of right now. Not, you know, not the, 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 the craters of the moon or anything like that, or not some clairvoyant or non-physical experience. This is it. Life is its own reward. What does that mean? We have to be living in it for it to be a reward, doesn't it? We have to be accepting of it. Someone trying to get in? Uh, and, and the Buddha teaches us how to do that and to get to these very, very subtle levels of peace and calm, which is that, that pass from the third to the fourth jhana. And even that is impermanent, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So you said yeah, you, had, yeah. you had other questions, Tom? Um, no, I think that's okay for now. That's I've, I've got another one I'm going to ask um, maybe next time. But no, 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 I'm, I'm, that, that was good. I'm, that, that was a crucial one for me, which I just taken a, took, a, took me a little while to, um, yeah. to get my head around. But yeah, definitely, definitely getting there. So thanks. Yeah, and you, um, you've had that experience directly of passing from the third to yeah. the fourth jhana. And, you know, I should say that yeah. they're, they're, um, these, these four levels are delineated, but they really, one flows into the next. And you, you could call it, it the four levels of jhana as just ever-deepening concentration, but it's important to notice the difference, that, we're, that our concentration is actually deepening. Yeah. Because we could just, yeah. just take a breath and say, okay, I'm concentrated, you know, I've done it. A lot yeah. of meditation is left like that, isn't it? Just you know, quiet. You're, you know, sit quietly and kind of. I don't know. I I, I I can't really get my head around other meditation practices anymore, even though I've done them, because there was there was no structure to them, and this this is the only one I've ever come across that really. Even mantra. I started out with TM, and and that a mantra based meditation, and that just led me to follow a mantra rather than deepening my own understanding of my own mind because that's what it was about so thank you tom hello mateo thank you just uh, very quickly john before mateo speaks i have to jump off a couple of minutes early um i just have an errand i have to uh, deal so w without being rude and sort of just disappearing just uh, say thank you very much for teaching and um see i'll try to make it on saturday but if not definitely see you next thursday great and goodbye to everyone take care right. tom thank you hey mateo hey. Nothing to add. I will say noble silence. Everybody stole my huh. questions. <laughs> That's a well-focused so. sangha. Well, again, thank you, Mateo. Thank you for leading uh, leading the meditation today, too. How did it feel? Good, good. Uh, I think uh, when I started, I was a bit speed up. I was like just, you know, just reading the script. But then I tried to make more emotion and... You know, breathing and breathing out while I was like leading, and I think it like was like even more tasteful, at least for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you, you did great, and you know that, that just that just comes with time. So I put some Italian flavor in this meditation. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, well, I liked it. I liked it. It was the best <laughs> meditation I ever had. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any other questions or comments before we go off? Well, good. thank you all for, for joining, uh, and I hope to see you at our next class.
Peace. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.